Thank you for watching NTD Business. Coming up tonight, the SEC sues two major crypto firms, accusing them of illegally selling securities. This comes after one of the firms froze customer withdrawals, putting $900 million at stake. Apple CEO Tim Cook getting a big pay cut after shares fell more than 25% last year. And a congressman calling to audit the Federal Reserve while the central banker warns against it. That and much more coming up on NTD Business. Great to have you with us. Don Ma here. Our top story today is the latest in the U.S. government's crackdown on the crypto industry. The Securities and Exchange Commission is suing two major crypto firms. It says that their $900 million crypto lending program violated investor protection laws. The two firms are crypto exchange Gemini, founded by the Winklevoss twins of Facebook fame, and crypto lender Genesis. The complaint centers on their $900 million crypto lending program called Gemini Earn. The SEC says that Gemini Earn should be registered, which means the firms have to give detailed financial disclosures to clients. The Earn program works like this. Gemini customers lend their crypto to Genesis. In return, they get paid high amounts of interest, as high as 8%. What exactly Genesis did with that money, we don't know for sure, but it could be revealed over the course of this lawsuit. One big detail, though, is the lawsuit comes after Genesis paused all withdrawals from the EARN program, so those investors are unable to get back their $900 million. 340,000 of them. Gabriela Cruz is the CEO of the Global Digital Asset and Cryptocurrency Association. Her association's goal is to guide the evolution of digital assets within a good regulatory framework. She says the SEC is suing during a time of high legal and regulatory ambiguity. We've talked about the need for legal and regulatory clarity. And one of the key pieces that we've seen is that as opposed to moving legislation through the legislative process, which would help a lot of firms in this industry to be able to both enhance and balance the need for innovation, as well as to enhance consumer protection and market integrity, what we've seen instead has been time and time again, a bit of regulation by enforcement, meaning that as opposed to having a holistic piece that would advance sort of that balanced legal and regulatory framework, you see more ad hoc individual enforcement actions that are seeking to cop together some type of an approach. So the crypto world is still like the Wild West. It seems neither firms, investors, nor even the regulators themselves know exactly what a crypto firm can and can't do. Tyler Winklevoss, co-founder of Gemini, tweeted that he's disappointed the SEC is suing his company. He says he's been discussing the EARN program with the SEC for months. So all that time, the SEC knew about the EARN program, but didn't declare that it was illegal. Winklevoss then insulted the SEC, calling it, quote, super lame for announcing their lawsuit without notifying him. It's normal for firms to receive, to receive a cease and desist letter before being sued. Winklevoss went on to say that he's looking forward to defending against the SEC's, quote, manufactured parking ticket 
We spoke to finance professor John Edmonds. He says whether or not anything improper was happening at the EARN program is yet to be seen, but it is possible because crypto is so widely unregulated. In the world of crypto, uh, you, you don't you don't have any recourse. If if someone takes the money out the back door, in fact, one of the one of the slang terms is a rug, meaning pulling the rug out from under the investors. Get a whole bunch of people to put money in, take it out the back door, and say bye bye. So, what is the worst case scenario? We asked the senior digital assets analyst at Finder, Frank Corva. 340,000 Gemini Earn users would be out a total of $900 million worth of assets. Um, that would be a tremendous blow to uh, these retail investors, uh, many of them very sort of unknowing of all the details um, that this program entailed. Um, and it would also just, especially in the wake of FTX and the sort of chaotic year that 2022 was for crypto markets, it would just be another massive blow to just the term crypto. Meanwhile, Genesis isn't doing that well. Just last week, it laid off 30% of its staff. The Wall Street Journal reports it's even considering bankruptcy. Tyler Winklevoss, the co-founder of Gemini, says that Gemini has always worked hard to comply with all relevant laws and regulations. We reached out to Winklevoss, but didn't hear back before airtime. And moving on, J.P. Morgan Chase is shutting down its Frank website. It's a college financial planning site it bought in 2021. But now the bank is suing Frank's founder, claiming she lied about how many customers it has big time. NTD's Colin Fredrickson has the details. J.P. Morgan Chase paid $175 million for Frank in a bid to deepen its ties with students. It says it was led to believe that more than four and a quarter million students were on the site. But marketing test emails revealed that under 30% of those users were real, reflecting just 300,000 authentic student accounts. Emails between Frank's founder, Charlie Javis, and a New York-based data science professor later came to light. In them, Javis directed the data science professor to use synthetic data methods to create over 4.26 million customer names, email addresses, birthdays, and other personal information. Here's a look at some of the emails. In one of them, the professor wrote Javis to confirm that for names, our plan was to sample first name and last name independently and then ensure none of the sampled names are real. In another, this time about creating physical addresses, the professor wrote that he couldn't seem to find addresses in his raw files and asked whether he should attempt to fabricate them. An attorney for Javis denied the allegations. J.P. Morgan shut down Frank early Thursday. And on Wall Street, stocks finished higher today, with the S&P and Nasdaq seeing their best week since November. The Dow gained 113 points, or three-tenths of a percent. S&P added 16 points, or four-tenths of a percent. And the Nasdaq rose 78 points, or seven-tenths of one percent. Apple CEO Tim Cook has agreed to a big pay cut this year after shareholders rebelled against his compensation. The world's largest tech company says it will reduce Cook's target pay package to $49 million. That's 40% lower than his target pay for 2022, and about half of the $99.4 million in total compensation he was granted last year. The vast majority of Cook's 2022 compensation, 75%, was tied up in company shares, with half of that dependent on share price performance. 
But shareholders voted against Cook's pay package after Apple stock fell more than 25% last year. Cook's base salary of $3 million will stay the same, as well as his $6 million bonus. And another corporate giant clamps down on remote work. Starbucks is requiring corporate employees to return to the office to work. Interim CEO Howard Schultz said in a Wednesday memo that corporate workers at Starbucks must return to the office at least three days a week by the end of January. Employees within commuting distance of the company's Seattle headquarters will be required to be there on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and another day agreed upon with managers. Employees of regional offices must also report to the office three days a week, though the memo didn't name the days or specify what counts as commuting distance. The announcement comes a few days after Disney CEO Bob Iger ordered workers to return to the office four days a week starting March 1st. Disney employees will have to be in offices from Monday to Thursday. And now joining me to talk about getting people back to the office is Joe Hart. He's the CEO of Dale Carnegie Training and the co-author of the book titled Take Command, Find Your Inner Strength, Build Enduring Relationships, and Live the Life You Want. So, Joe, thank you very much for your time for doing this interview today. Thank you, Dan. Good to be with you. So let me ask you, you know, why is it so important to go back to the office? Well, it's a, it's a great question, and I know there are different points of view on it, and I, I don't know that the, uh, that the answer is conclusive one way or the other. Um, I know I've talked to many CEOs, including the publicly traded CEOs and others, um, who are saying, hey, we want to get our people back to the, the office. We're concerned about culture. We're concerned about um, some of the younger people that we've onboarded. How do they get access to, to training and to really understand kind of um, you know, how we work here? And at the same time, I've talked to many other CEOs who've said, Sheesh, you know, we've been very productive over these past few years, and people really value the flexibility that we give them. So what they have done is, is focused on, you know, in what ways can they really make their culture a strong one and a compelling one? How do they onboard people and do that effectively virtually? And, and as Dale Carnegie uh, is a global training organization, we help both kinds of companies do that. Mm, I see. So I guess let me ask on behalf of those uh, CEOs who want workers to come back into the office. How do you convince them to do that? Yeah, and, and by the way, I have, I've got great empathy and many of my, my friends who are CEOs are exactly down, like you're saying, they, they wanna get their people in and I think it's, it's important to do that. You know, Dale Carnegie teaches about talking in terms of the other person's interests. And I, I think that is a better approach than one that might be, um, you know, certainly the, many companies are making it compulsory. This They'll basically say you have to be in, and if you're not in, then we'll consider that a resignation. That's certainly an approach. You know, but, but by understanding what some of the barriers are, so for example, a company could say, we want you to come into the office, but we recognize that, you know, we need to be flexible. If you need to leave for certain kinds of things, as long as you're getting your work done and being productive, you know, we'll give you flexibility that maybe you didn't have uh, before when you were in five days a week. You know, or maybe we can do things to make the, the uh, in-office experience more attractive. Certainly, uh, there are things they can do, uh, but there are, there are certainly advantages. I mean, the water cooler kind of conversations, the incidental types of things that happen in the hallway, um, the, the conversations, getting to know people, that, that is certainly an advantage of being in person. And that's also something that companies can highlight when they're talking about you know, really giving good reasons about, here's why we're coming back to the office, here's why we want you back and really from a communication standpoint, emphasizing those things. I see, so I guess it's all about negotiation, right? But let me ask, 
you know, there's people who are absolutely convinced that they don't need to come back to the office. How, how do you make them, you know, you can force them, of course, but they won't be happy coming back to the, to the office and their productivity will be affected. What do you do in this scenario? No, I mean, you're, you're right. I think that what you've just said is, is very true. You can force someone to come back and then what you might have is a disengaged employee. And, and candidly, there are times where, you know, if you have an employee and you have a company, their visions need to be aligned. It's got to be the right fit for both parties. And um, it might be in a case like that. I mean, let me give you an example just to your point, Dan. I talked to a CEO who said, look, I'm going to require all my employees to come back to work. And I recognize some of them may not want to come back and, you know, might do so grudgingly. And if they need to leave, that's okay. You know, I'm, I'm willing to um, take the hit and lose a, a certain percentage of people in order to ultimately have the people who want to be back in the office who are willing, willing to do that. We don't certainly don't want people to be uh, disengaged employees, negative employees, creating a toxic work environment in the office. Do you think uh, this is going to be a trend, uh, you know, having remote work uh, for a corporation? Do you think this is going to be more and more prevalent? I think it's certainly going to continue into the future. What I, I would not surpri be surprised to see is particularly as the economy tightens, more companies saying, you know, we're going to want people to come back into the office. Um, so I, I, I would not be surprised to see more companies having returned to the office, but there's, there's going to remain. I don't think we're ever going to go, to, we're ever going to go back to the way that it was before. I think we're, we're going to continue to have uh, a high percentage of employers who are uh, going to be virtual and or hybrid. Okay, great. Thank you very much, Joe Hart, CEO of Dale Carnegie Training. Pleasure speaking to you. You too, Dan. Thank you much. And again, that was Joe Hart, CEO of Dale Carnegie Training. He has a new book coming out called Take Command. You can find out more at takecommand.com. A push to prevent congressional members from trading stocks while serving in office is gaining momentum. On Thursday, Democratic Representative Abigail Spanberger and Republican Representative Chip Roy reintroduced the Trust in Congress Act. The proposal calls for lawmakers, their spouses, and dependent children to place particular investment assets into a qualified blind trust. This is the third attempt to get this bill to the floor, but unlike before, there is more support. It was introduced with 35 co-sponsors from both parties. Some members of Congress were scrutinized for financial moves made during the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic. Republican Congressman Thomas Massey Tuesday reintroduced his Federal Reserve Transparency Act in the House. He does it every year. It's dubbed the Audit the Fed Bill. It would require a full audit of the Fed's Board of Governors and the Federal Reserve Banks. Massey's bill is based on an older bill by former Congressman Ron Paul. Free market conservatives like Paul and Massey blame the central bank for economic instability. They think auditing the Fed would bring more transparency that could allow the public to better prepare for and avoid financial crises. Here's Ron Paul at the Cato Institute in 2009 when he was a lawmaker. Well, I've been talking about it for decades and arguing that we had a financial system that was very friable, very vulnerable, and it was the Fed that was creating the bubbles. And therefore, we should be looking into it and preventing these problems rather than waiting for a cataclysmic financial uh, crisis to hit. Federal Reserve Banks are both private and public. They're not part of the federal government, but lawmakers created them through an act of Congress. So the Board of Governors, which oversees the banks, is an independent government agency. 
but the Federal Reserve banks are private corporations. Back in 2014, Congressman Massey argued why the public deserves more insight into the central bank. The Federal Reserve has, on the one hand, many privileges of government agencies while retaining benefits of private organizations, such as being largely insulated from Freedom of Information Act requests. The Federal Reserve can enter into agreements with foreign central banks and foreign governments, and the GAO is prohibited from auditing these agreements. The Government Accountability Office does review the Fed from time to time, but they're not full-scale audits. They don't include arrangements made with foreign counterparts. Massey's bill would require full audits. Fed Chair Jerome Powell also stressed the importance of Transparency Tuesday. But in the past, the central banker has also warned against the audit, the Fed movement. He argued it could put too much political pressure on monetary policy. A House panel is now reviewing the bill. And a blow for Microsoft's military contract. Congress has slowed down the funding for costly augmented reality goggles for the military made by the tech giant. NTD's Star Marshall has more. The Army's tech for soldiers is getting close to the levels of science fiction and video games with high-tech HoloLens goggles in the works from Microsoft. The Army plans to use the augmented reality goggles in the classroom and on the battlefield for mixed reality training. Some projected uses include operational prep, night vision, battlefield communications, weapons aiming assistance, and more. There are just a couple of problems with the Army's version of the HoloLens that need to be worked on. Tests showed that there were mission-affecting physical impairments, including headache, eye strain, and nausea. A common problem that also happens to some people when they try a virtual reality headset for the first time. (laughs) Tech professional Burton Kelso. But but the challenge is, is that when it comes to technology, everyone wants to be cutting edge. And if you look at examples like the metaverse, and um, we can even go back with uh, beta versus VHS, you know, 30 years ago. It's everyone wants to be cutting edge and people just jump onto the first thing that happens. Congress denied the U.S. Army's request for $400 million to buy as many as 6,900 pairs of goggles this fiscal year. Instead, lawmakers approved the transfer of 40 million of those procurement funds to develop a new model of the goggles, says Army spokesperson David Patterson. Some oppose the spending and have labeled it as an impulse buy. Most people think and most businesses think, and unfortunately the government thinks, if we latch onto this technology, it's gonna put us light years against our competitors. And with the military, it's obviously foreign governments that we're competing against. And we wanna get every advantage that we can get in order to make sure that we can stand out as a dominant power as far as the military around the world. A report found that the goggles were giving away the positions of soldiers. The report also found that soldiers complained that the device was uncomfortable and heavy, limiting their movement and even cutting off their peripheral vision. Despite the complaints, the Army is saying that the tests were a success. Sean Marshall, NTD News. Democrats allegedly pushed a false Russiagate narrative even though they were told it wasn't true. That's according to the latest installment of the so-called Twitter files. Take a look. Journalist Matt Taibbi released more Twitter files on Thursday. 
he alleges that prominent Democrats knowingly pushed a false Russiagate-related narrative about Russian bots during the Trump-Russia investigation. That's despite their being told by Twitter executives that it wasn't true. Taibbi tweeted, quote, At a crucial moment in a years-long furor, Democrats denounced a report about flaws in the Trump-Russia investigation, saying it was boosted by Russian bots and trolls. And emails appear to show that. Twitter officials were aghast, finding no evidence of Russian influence. Democrats' Russia allegations allegedly started after some Republicans demanded they release a memo, starting a hashtag which was called Release the Memo. It was later released and showed how the FBI under the Obama administration used unverified opposition research to obtain a warrant to spy on one of Trump's campaign volunteers. It was part of an investigation into alleged Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election. Days after the hashtag was started, some Democrats demanded social media companies investigate allegations of Russian bots and trolls surrounding the Release the Memo online campaign. Various legacy media outlets did the same, claiming Russian bots and trolls were behind the effort. Taibbi says NBC, Political, AP, Times, Business Insider, and other media outlets who played up the Russian bot story, even Rolling Stone, all declined to comment for this story. Also, Yoel Roth, who was Twitter's trust and safety chief at the time, reportedly told colleagues, I just reviewed the accounts that posted the first 50 tweets with hashtag release the memo, and none of them showed any signs of affiliation to Russia. Taibbi concluded, alleging, quote, the Russiagate scandal was built on the craven dishonesty of politicians and reporters who for years ignored the absence of data to fictional scare headlines. We're taking a break now, but if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at business at ntd.com. Still to come, tax season right around the corner. When will the IRS start accepting and processing returns? And we look at new movies, including A Boy Cowboy Tale with Nicolas Cage. Then more coming up on NTD Business. Welcome back. The holiday season is behind us, and a less celebrated season is right around the corner, tax season. The IRS has officially set January 23rd as the start of the 2023 tax season, the day the agency will begin accepting and processing 2022 returns. Normally, the filing deadline is April 15th, but this year, that's a Saturday. And the following Monday is off the table as well, since Emancipation Day, which is a holiday, is on Sunday. So this year, the filing deadline is Tuesday, April 18th. The IRS is expecting upwards of 168 million individual tax returns. Tax season was dramatically impacted by the pandemic in recent years. The IRS said it has hired more than 5,000 new employees to take phone calls and added more in-person staff to help support taxpayers. HPO Max increasing its price for the first time since launch. Effective immediately, the ad-free version, ad-free streaming service costs $1 more. That makes it about $16 a month, which is just a few cents more than the standard Netflix plan. The version of HBO Max that has ads will remain about $10 a month. The service launched in 2020 and released a plan with ads last year. A Cowboy Tale from the Old West, 
and a search for gold in the desert southwest. Here's a sneak peek on some new films just released. Tell me the names of the men who did this. For his first lead role in a Western, the Old Way star oh, Nicolas Cage that. made sure his hat was just right. I grew up watching uh, Charles Bronson in Once Upon a Time in the West, and I carefully, he had a very balanced hat in that movie, and I carefully balanced my hat in the Old Way, wanted to modulate it so that it wasn't one of those stupid 10-gallon cowboy hats, but a very carefully balanced hat. In 1937, Doc Noss was hunting, and he discovered something. $28 billion. 16,000 bars of gold. The gold was trapped inside the mountain. That explosion started a chain reaction that has consumed my family for decades now. Is there really a $28 billion treasure buried in a mountain in New Mexico? A new docuseries follows the hunt for the gold through connections to the U.S. government, the military, even the Watergate hearings. The six-part series Gold, Lies, and Videotape premieres Friday on Discovery and Discovery+. Plus. The National Park Service is offering free entry to national parks next Monday, Martin Luther King Jr. Day. It's one of five days this year when entrance fees will be waived at all 63 national parks in the U.S. and at more than 420 places total. The free day on Monday is a great time weather-wise to visit national parks that are blazing hot in summer, like Death Valley National Park in California, Big Bend National Park in Texas, and Everglades National Park in Florida. But given how popular the parks have become, it might be a good idea to check online for potential timed entries on the free days. If you can't make this one, other dates the national parks will be free are April 22nd, August 4th, September 23rd, and November 11th, Veterans Day. And that's the latest from the NTD business team and myself, Don Ma. That's all for today. Thank you for watching, and we'll see you next week.